Hi guys, my name is Jason Mountford and welcome to this week's episode of The Hedge Podcast. I'm feeling good, I'm feeling pumped, I'm ready to bring you bring you guys a really interesting, I overuse that word, interesting, I use that all the time, I need to come up with some new words. I've got some good stuff, to, oh, that's, not, that's not much better is it? Anyway, there's some topics forming to talk to you about today, they're topical, I'm going to be talking about uh, inflation and wages and all this conversation we've got going on a lot at the moment with the strike action, people looking for increases in, in their salaries and their wages in their hourly rate because obviously the cost of living is going up so much and there's a lot of conversation around whether that will actually make the problems worse. Will that increase the amount that companies are needing to pay and therefore they need to put up their prices even further? So I want to talk through that issue. It's not a black and white one. Everyone's going to have a different opinion on it, even very intelligent people with lots of letters after their name, but I'm going to throw in my opinion on what I think. I also want to talk about uh, PE ratios, price to earnings ratios. Now, um, as the stock market goes down in value, companies start to look like better value. They look uh, more attractive for investment purposes. And PE ratio is one of the kind of really simple, basic ways that um, analysts look at stocks. It's definitely not the only way, but it's one kind of metric that is worth uh, talking through. So I want to explain that because as prices go down, those PE ratios go up. Uh, sorry, go down as well. Um, I also want to talk about bull markets versus bear markets. I think we've well, I know we've had a few months now of uh, a pretty poor performance in the stock market. We officially, or the S&P 500 in America, officially went into a bear market last week. Um, I know that lots of people that I speak to are nervous about their investments, thinking about pulling everything out and putting it into cash. And in almost every circumstance, that is the worst possible thing you could do. So I want to talk through, kind of try and put that into into perspective, let you know, give you the, the statistics on what the average length of a bull market is and bear market and kind of just gain some perspective because it's hard to. I know it is. It's hard to when you look at your portfolio on a regular basis, when you're logging into the app and it keeps going down in value. It can be hard to keep that perspective, so I want to, I want to uh, try and try and give that to you today. Now, before I jump into those those topics, um, I want to say a, a big thank you to Zia, who is a listener of the show from the the Philippines, um, and she's actually left me a really uh, a really nice review. She's called me very insightful, um, which is something that I'll definitely I'll definitely take that compliment. Um, and she's given me a five star review as well, so I really appreciate that, Zia. Thank you, thank you so much for leaving that review. And guys, if you uh, um, can spare a couple of minutes to jump on your favorite app, whether that's uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, they're the big ones. Um, if you could leave me a review, that that really helps. It really jays me up, um, really gets me in the mood. I got that email yesterday. I was like, yeah, I'm pumped. I'm pumped to get on and uh, put down an episode of the podcast today. So let's get into, into the episode. Let's in, get into the meat and potatoes of it. I want to start off with talking about wages and inflation, right? We all know what inflation is. We've been talking about. I've been talking about it a lot. Everyone on the news has been talking about it a lot. We've all seen it in action. We see how much our power bills are going up, our energy bills. We've been seeing how much our uh, our food shop is going up. All that stuff, right? And that's nothing new. I'm not going to bore you to death with more talk about what inflation actually is. But what I do want to talk about is the issue that we're seeing a lot at the moment. The rail strikes is the big one. They are. Um, they're striking. They want a bigger pay rise than what they've been offered because cost of living is going up so much. It's not just uh, the rail. We've heard potentially junior doctors, junior barristers. Um, we've seen uh, a fireman today, fire department, firemen and women, uh, fire department looking for a 10% raise. And 
I, I don't blame them. I really don't don't fucking blame them at all because costs are going up so much. We're all feeling the pinch. And if costs are going up that much and your income's not going up to match that, then it's it's tight. It's hard. You've got less money to spend on the things that you need to spend money on, let alone things you want to spend money on. So one of the arguments um, is that the, one of the pushbacks you always get, and even Rishi Sunak was giving uh, this as an argument, is that you can't go ahead and um, just give massive pay rises out because that will make inflation worse, right? So Rishi Sunak, he was explaining about input costs and effectively what he was meaning by that is let's use, let's use a, um, I don't know, let's use a car manufacturer as an example because that's a, a pretty straightforward run. You've got, in order to make a car, you've got lots of different costs, right? You've got the ones you would imagine. You've got to buy tires, you've got to buy exhaust pipes, you've got to buy seats, material for the seats. You've got to buy all the different bits and pieces that go into building that car. Now, if the costs of those bits and pieces go up, you need to pass on that increase in cost to the end consumer in order to maintain your profit margin. Um, it's the same whether you're talking about grocery stores, you know, if, if it costs them, uh, if, they're, if they're paying 20p for a lettuce and that goes up to 30p, in order to maintain their profit margin, they've got to put the price up by 10p at least um, to, to us buying that lettuce. And the argument goes that wages, employees are input costs. So if you put up your uh, if you put up your wages by 10%, that 10% increase in payroll needs to be passed through to the uh, to the end consumer. And because people are involved in pretty much every aspect of everything that we do, um, that's going to impact pretty much all the costs that we have. Now, from a practical standpoint or a theoretical standpoint, I should say, I understand that. I do agree. I understand that if you have to increase the costs of your business, that in order to maintain those same profit margins, you need to pass that additional cost on to the end consumer. And that's the main argument they're making. I do have a big, big problem with this though. And the problem that I have is that the key sentence that I've used there or the key phrase is in order to maintain their profit margin. I would argue that companies don't need to maintain their profit margin at all times through all economic parts of the economic cycle. In fact, part of the reason why the owners of the business as shareholders are rewarded for investing is that they don't have certainty of their profit margins. They don't have certainty of the revenue. They don't have certainty of their dividends each year. Part of the deal with owning a business, whether you own a small business or whether you are a shareholder in a massive business, is that you don't have a good year every single fucking year. Some years you'll make 20%, some years you'll lose 5%, some years you'll be flat, some years you'll earn 7%. That's just the way it is. And that's, I think, a real problem with the way that this issue is being phrased in um, in the media, in on social media, is that it's being sold as a zero-sum game, as an all-or-nothing proposition that if wages go up, costs need to go up. And I think that's bullshit. I think there needs to be an actual grown-up conversation that is had with the companies that are responsible for making, uh, for setting pay, with their shareholders, with the people who are massive stakeholders in their business, with the senior executives, with the CEOs who are getting paid for six hundred grand a year, sitting down and saying. Times are really fucking tight at the moment. It's a tough couple of years. We're struggling with supply chain issues off the back of COVID. 
Costs are going up significantly. Our people are struggling financially. We need to support them through this. We need to be stewards for our industry as a whole, for the often thousands of people or tens of thousands of people that work for us. And we need to understand that for the next 18 months, a couple of years, the profit levels that we generate aren't going to be as significant as they've been in previous years. Now, I'm not arguing for companies to make no profit. Profit is important for the long-term viability of of a company. They need to cover their costs and pocket some extra money in order to you know, smooth out other things that get thrown in, in, in the future. I'm, I'm not saying operate at a loss for the next three years. What I'm saying is there needs to be some moderation and there needs to be, um, there needs to be, there needs to stop being uh, blame put on the workers at the bottom of the chain. Let's be honest. And I'm putting myself in that category at the bottom of the chain who are expected to wear shitty pay rises or no pay rises or pay cuts in real terms in order to maintain the executive salary packages at the top end of the tree and the massive shareholder profits. Now, you know, I know I may be coming across as a bit of a socialist or whatever. I don't really identify with any political party, especially in the UK. Uh, I don't think I've really been here long enough. Uh, that's not true. I've been here long enough, but you know, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't identify with any political party, so it's not a political statement I'm making. I think you know to use that, uh, to use a um, an example that is the biggest one at the moment. Now, granted, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I've not poured through the books of Network Rail, but let's look at them as, as an example, right? So, this is the biggest strike at the moment is the rail industry um, striking because it, there's you know there's not uh, they're not they don't believe they're receiving enough of a pay increase. The rail companies and the, the, the rail industry is pushing back saying we can't afford to give you a pay rise um, because that would mean that tickets would go up, right? Just kind of what I was explaining there about input costs. Well, you know, I've got the books for Network Rail up in front of me here. So this is the um, Chief Financial Officer's Review for 2020 and 20. 2020 slash 2021. So it's the last full financial year. Keeping in mind that those that year, 2020 and 2021, was the pandemic year. So for a start, costs uh, people riding the trains was down significantly. There may be some government support in this figures. Uh, I'm not 100 sure, but that year, 2020 and 2021, Network Rail made a profit before tax of 1.6 billion pounds. Go back. Year before that, they made a profit of three hundred and seventy-five million pounds. I do not buy the argument that there is not money to pay workers more. I just don't. Now, like I say, I don't know exactly how this system works. I know it's pretty complicated with the network rail, with the actual train companies and whatever. But my point is, within the system, regardless of how, if there's inefficiencies there of certain parts of the, of the um, whole industry making money and certain parts losing money and whatever, the point is, is if you've got one major part of that that's making 1.6 billion pounds worth of profit, there is enough there to get the system working properly and to get everyone being paid fairly for the jobs that they do. So. Look, like I say, I am one tiny voice in this, but I just want to throw out something different in this discourse that I'm seeing, especially on in mainstream news about um, conservative mainstream news pushing back on on it being unaffordable. I just think that's bullshit, and I think for people who are working for um, working as employees, I think you've got to have you know try and you've got to try and have some um, pride in what you do and some. Um, fortitude about valuing 
you as a as a as a resource for your company. Um, I wish there was more I could do about it. It's something that I'm going to keep talking more about because I feel really really strongly about it. I think the messaging is really really negative out there at the moment, and I think in our country there is more money to go around than what we're made to believe. We're made to believe that if you're on the bottom, that's just the way it is. And if you ask for something more, you've got to give up something in return. And I don't think that's right. I think things are too unequal. They're getting more unequal all the time. And I think it needs to it needs to change. Right, with that said, I know I said it's not political, but it kind of is political. So let's lighten the mood a little bit. Let's lighten the topic. And we're going to talk about PE ratios. Now, the reason I want to talk about this is because a lot of companies have seen billions uh, written off their their stock values so far this year. So the US tech sector is the the really big one. You know, companies like Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, they've lost like double digit percent, like sometimes close to half the value of their company. And if you're an investor who's maybe new to investing or you know, you're still in the early stages, that looks really scary, right? That looks like you've lost 45% of your your the value of your of your assets. And I think the thing to always try and keep in mind is that behind the scenes of the stock price, the business hasn't really changed in many, many cases. Now, sometimes that's not true. Sometimes a stock price is going down because the company is going to shit for some reason. But when it's all the companies, they can't all be going down for fundamental reasons. Unless, again, there is a fundamental problem with the industry, like imagine the banking industry in 2008, something like that. But if we're using the US tech sector now as an example, there's nothing fundamental that's changed with the US tech sector. You know, I'm still buying just as much stuff from Amazon. I'm still using just as many Apple products. I'm still paying for just as many streaming services. My consumer behavior hasn't changed, and I'm sure yours probably hasn't either, you know, other than maybe using Zoom a little bit less doing a bit more face-to-face, stuff like that. But, you know, we're talking on the margins. Broadly speaking, life hasn't really changed that much for a lot of people. If anything, we're spending more on that stuff because fucking inflation. Um, So when we're looking at whether a share is undervalued, fair value, one of the things we can look at is price-to-earnings ratio. Now, again, I want to stress that this is not something where you can look purely at PE ratio and say, oh, that's a low PE ratio, that means it's a buy. That's not the case. It's one data point, but it's one worth talking about. So I want to break this down. So price-to-earnings ratio, price is the stock price divided by the earnings of the company, the revenue of the company, um, or earnings per share, and yeah, earnings per share. So the price to the earnings per share, and it's the divided. So the earnings per share divided by the price. That will give you a number which represents how many years worth of earnings, worth of income from that company it would take to cover the cost. So if you have a um, if you have a company, I'm going to use some really simple numbers. If you have a company worth $9 a share, £9 a share, and the dividend, the earnings per share is, I know they're slightly different, but we're going to we're going to use them interchangeably for, for the sake of this uh, explanation, um, is three pounds, the PE ratio will be three. So it means it would take you three years of income, the income that that share generates, to pay back your original investment that it, that it costs you to buy the share. So you buy the share for nine, $9, nine quid, you get three quid a year as a dividend payment, it would take you three years to get your money back. So the idea with that is that obviously the lower the PE ratio, the lower the risk that company is. Because even if after four years, 
that company goes bankrupt, well, you've made, you've got 12 pounds back, you've still made three pounds on your initial nine pound investment for that particular share. So that's kind of a, a very crude way of looking at whether a company is good value or not. Now, the key with PE ratios is that they're very different for, for different industries. So industries where there's not as much, uh, not much growth expected in the future will tend to trade at lower PE ratios. So if you're talking about like oil companies is a big one. So oil and energy producers like BP, like Chevron, like Shell, there's not going to be a 10x increase in their revenue probably in the short space of time. You know, Oil reserves are very well known. The um, profit margins in that industry are very stable. Uh, the kind of operating costs are very stable. It's a ma- very mature business that doesn't isn't really ripe for disruption. You can't really disrupt the oil and gas industry. So because of that, people aren't really prepared to bet on future growth because there's probably not going to be much. There will be growth. Companies will do well. They'll grow their revenues. They'll grow their profits. But it will be kind of a, a slow and steady process. So I'm just going to pull numbers out of my head here. But you know, let's say a, a kind of common PE ratio in the oil and gas industry might be like eight times. So eight times is around kind of fair value. What those kind of uh, what those companies tend to trade at when they're when they're considered to be fair value. If you go to the tech sector, on the other hand and in particular kind of smaller, earlier stage companies in the tech sector or, um, you know, even, you know, startups, that sort of thing, then not only are people prepared to pay based on the the current income, but they're prepared to pay or pay more for the stock based on its potential for future income. So in those kind of industries, PE ratios can get pretty, pretty fucking crazy because people are not that worried about the income or the dividends that are being generated now because they feel like in the future that company is going to go do very, very well and potentially grow significantly. So Tesla is one that comes to mind. I'm just going to look it up right now because I'm pretty sure from last time I looked that the Tesla PE ratio is really high. Um, what are we looking at here? So white chart. Yes, at the moment, Tesla's PE ratio is, and I'm going to go back even further. So at the moment, Tesla's PE ratio is 100, 100 times. And it's been as high back in January 2021 before this big crash. It was like 1,300 times the PE ratio. So again, tech's going to have a higher than average PE ratio. I think Amazon is, is is well into the double digits. I think it's like 40 or 30 or something like that. So PE ratio in and of itself, the number doesn't really tell you much. But what it can start to tell you as an initial kind of starting point is how a company is being valued against its peers. So, you know, if you, if you had the... Um, Sticking with the tech sector, if you had, you know, Amazon, uh, Amazon, Facebook, um, uh, Microsoft, and Google, you know, the big players, Apple, and you're looking at PE ratios, it's not going to tell you the whole story, but it might, if one of them is particularly a lot lower than others, that might be a signal that, oh, okay, is Google underpriced? Then let's have a little bit more of a deep, a deep dive into that. Same if you're looking at like the supermarkets, for example. If there was one supermarket supermarket that was trading at a much lower PE ratio than the others, is there a reason for that? Like why? Why would that be? Does that mean that they are undervalued as a company? 
Um, the reason why I wanted to talk about this now is because it's one of the kinds of things that investors, professional investors will look at that can help provide support to um, stock prices as they fall. You know, if, if I was looking at Tesla in January last year and the PE ratio was bloody 1300%, that's fucking bonkers that. That is so high. So, you know, based on their current um, current earnings, it's going to take me 1,300 years to get my money back. Like, that's crazy. But the share price has tanked. The share price has really, really tanked. And I think probably revenue and income has, has, has ticked up at the same time. And now, all of a sudden, professional investor might be looking at that or a fund manager might be looking at that and saying, hmm, shit, okay, that price-to-earnings ratio is looking way more attractive now. Historically speaking, if we go back you know, 10 years or whatever, that's actually... That's actually pretty good. Um, and they're not just going to be doing this for one company. They'll be doing this for whole sectors of the economy. You know, you can look at P/E ratio averages across, you know, the oil and gas industry or consumer staples industry and see trends that when stock stocks fall in value, they become I keep I keep using this term the same way. When they fall in value, they become better value, right? And so this is this is why really stocks can only only fall so far before there becomes an appetite to buy in again. And with more money going in, with more people buying in, that then bids up the price and that's what can start turning uh, turning a, um, turning a, a recovery, starting a recovery. And so I think it's important to just always keep in mind what you're investing in when you're investing in the stock market. You're investing in constructive, revenue-generating, profit-making businesses. And that can't ever stop unless society as we know it changes forever you know companies will continue to generate profits um and i think that can easily be lost when you're looking at your portfolio every day and it's and it's dropping in value and you're feeling like you know it could it could drop the same amount again next week and the week after and and carry on forever it can't carry on forever and just to kind of further illustrate this point the last thing i wanted to have a talk about today was the average length of a bear market versus a bull market. Again, when you're in the depth of it, when you're in the middle of it, it can feel like the good times are over in a flash and the bad times last forever. You know, it's like if you're if you're, you know, on a night out, if you're, you know, out doing a hike, if you're at a party, if you're at a theme park, like whatever, if you're doing something fun, something that you want to do, time goes so fast, right? Like, you know, a whole day just goes in an absolute flash if you're having having a blast. Um, time flies when you're having fun, as they say. Um, and same with the bull market. When the bull market is going up, everyone's feeling great. Everyone's feeling awesome. You know, there's euphoria. Uh, social media is, is just uh, you know a buzz with how much money everybody's making. Feels good. It goes quick. It goes quick. A bear market. When you're looking at your portfolio on a regular basis, when you're panicking about what might happen, it can feel like forever. Every day you're logging in, which you shouldn't do, but if you're doing it, you're logging in all the time. Oh, has it turned around? No, I've lost more money. Is today any better? Is this week any better? And it can really drag on. The statistics tell us the the opposite. So actually, the average length of a bear market is 9.6 months, and the average length of a bull market is 2.5 years. So that's the average. So bear markets can last longer than that. But on average, they last less than a year, which is really not very long. Like if you think about, we're only just in a bear market now, uh, officially in the, in America anyway. Um, but 
it would be if the, if if this negative downturn continued um, to the end of this year, that would be a long bear market because it's been going down since January basically. That'd be a long bear market, but above average. On the flip side, once things recover, so once we do start to see a turnaround, maybe the Russia-Ukraine situation gets sorted out, inflation starts to come back to normal. On average, we're in for two and a half years of good times. Now again, maybe it's only 12 months of good times, maybe it's two years of good times, maybe it's four years of good times, we don't know, it's an average. But I think it's really important to keep that in mind that over the course of, if you're investing for 50 years, you know, say you're you know, start investing in your 20s or early 30s, you're going to live for around 50 years longer. On average, you will see 14 bear markets in your time. So if you're in your, um, you know, if you're anywhere from, well, when was the last one really? The last proper one was 2008, right, which was 12 years ago. So you probably, you know, probably have to be in your mid-30s to have been investing at that time. You got a lot more bear markets to go. So they're nothing to be worried about. They're nothing to be scared about. It's important just to keep perspective, remember the long term, understand that this is part of it, and understand that it will get easier once you've gone through it once before. I'm not, I'm not worried at all. I'm really not worried at all. Um, I lived through 2008. I just entered the industry. Um, I had was working my first job in financial planning, financial services. Um, I started about six months before the global financial crisis in 2008 fully hit and it was fucking carnage like I couldn't believe it I I was having to make calls to people telling them how much money that they had lost I was having to call people who had margin calls telling them that they needed to come up with $80,000 by next week other or next week that'd be nice by tomorrow or the portfolio would be liquidated it was fucking horrendous we've seen how bad it can get I've seen the situations that can arise that really can fuck you over long term. So I know how to avoid them and tell people how to avoid them. Don't use margin is one. Um, and I can explain that if you're interested, if you want to know what a margin loan is and a margin call, how that works, email me. Um, I'm more than happy to explain that if that's interesting. It's a bit niche though. So I'll only go that into that if I get a couple of emails. Um, and that's all it comes down to. Understanding what happens, not panicking because the world hasn't changed. Everything is is pretty much as it was two years ago well, four years ago when we're all living normal lives, spending money in normal ways and just keep that perspective, stay the long term, stay the course and things will be be okay in the end or at least they always have been so far in the last however many hundred years of, of uh, public markets. So if you have questions, guys, um, look, I would love to hear from you. Like I say, if you want to know a bit more about margin lending, margin calls, how that all works, feel free to go onto the website, thehedge.io. Drop me an email, let me know um, what questions you've got. It may be about margin lending, maybe about your own investment portfolio, it may be about your pension, anything really. Um, if I get more content from or, or ideas from you guys, um, that really helps me. Just make sure I'm bringing you stuff that is interesting. Um, so do head over to the website, thehedge.io. That's the best way to uh, get in touch with me. Um, but as always, guys, thank you so much for listening to the show. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to speaking to you again on the next episode of The Hedge.